And welcome to the Pink Isle. My name is Henry Kathman, and joining me is the observer of all things Barbie, my co-host with the mostest, Emma Corey. Now, you see, in this instance, I consider myself to be more of a consumer, a consumer of knowledge, you might say. Mm. I'm just seeing all these good historical facts you're bringing to me, and I'm... I'm gobbling all I'm gobbling all up and I gotta say I'm I'm liking what I'm tasting. Thank you. I yeah. This is part three of Behind the Barbie, the story of Ruth Handler. If you have not already listened to the last two parts, uh I mean, I'm not a cop. D- do what you want, but this is gonna be Say, have you I don't know. I worked I, very hard on those first two. I definitely so, have had yeah. moments of like um kind of multi-part historical podcast where I accidentally like listened to the entirety of like the second part, not knowing that it was the <laughs> second part. And then it's like, well, I did the second part. I can't just go back to listen to the first part. Now it's already been concluded. Oof. Yeah. So don't, don't make that mistake. Listener, go, go listen to parts one and two. I worked very hard on those and <laughs> I don't know it. Uh, Cause we've discussed a fair bit about our, our main lady, Ruth Handler, the mother of Barbie, and the, I, w- I would hazard to say, complicated, complicated historical figure. When we last left off, the Handlers and Mattel were finally starting to see some degree of success with their plastic fashion doll, Barbie. While far from the overnight success that some accounts like to make it out to be, it was enough to garner both Mattel and Ruth a reputation amongst the toy industry. I mean, she's just kind of a business lady. Like, I don't really have much uh, strong feelings about her per se. I think it's kind of impressive that she was, you know, a woman during this time period that was able to kind of achieve this sort of powerful position in this company. And I'm uh, mm-hmm. I'm interested as to uh, what could be discovered, because, you know... It's like the movie Tar. Uh, someone may seem just like <laughs> your typical genius up front, but you don't really know what a dark secrets they might be hiding beneath. So, yeah. Okay, that's a that's a very interesting comparison. I mean, we did discuss a bit last time about how interesting it would be to have a uh, Ruth Handler biopic and some of the people that are being casted. Honestly. I could picture Kate Blanchett also going for a Ruth Handler, although I will say Meryl Streep would be my first pick. <laughs> we talked already a little bit about some of the interesting circumstances surrounding the design of Barbie, but now Barbie's a success. A And thanks to the Handler's exclusive advertisement rights on the very popular Mickey Mouse Club TV show, Barbie is entering a large number of houses. And all throughout this time, uh, Mattel and Ruth are getting this kind of reputation for being a little bit uh, provoking amongst different executives. So 
I, I, just to give you an idea, Emma, let me tell you this one particular anecdote where uh, the handlers were attending a demonstration of the newest toy from their competitors, a company owned by the Hassenfeld brothers, which is known as Hasbro. You might have heard of them. A company that has done zero things to cause anger and annoyance with the people that uh, are owning the intellectual properties of Hasbro. Yep. 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 Zero bad business decisions on their part that I can think of at this particular moment. But I mean, what was the worst thing they did? Bring bronies into the world? I was going to say Battleship, uh, <laughs> which... Battleship no, with I mean, Rihanna. Okay, l listen, Rihanna was the best part of that movie. Like, but... The damage Transformers the did to... The Michael Bay Transformers did to our society. Oh, oh, that's a... We don't even... That is a whole other can of worms we don't have time. No, instead of uh, Transformers or Battleship or uh, their more recent acquisition of Wizards of the Coast... Uh, during this demonstration, the Hasbro design team was showcasing their newest doll, which was called G.I. Joe, which there are a couple of things that distinguish this doll from Barbie. For one, it was marketed to boys and specifically was using the design philosophy of Barbie, but taking that idea of sort of being educational, but for masculinity and in addition to having all the different accessories similar to barbie except with guns uh it also boasted a similar level of quality demonstrated in their clothing items as well as a greater degree of posability where um they kind of revolutionized the ball and socket kind of hinges that you see commonly in a lot of uh action figures today where you know, you can kind of pop in their arm and it gives kind of the illusion that it can, like, move up and down and side to side. However, to quote the biography Barbie and Ruth, Finally, they tugged off Joe's pants. The molded hip piece, separately jointed from just below the stomach and legs, had a nondescript U-shape creased in the front and a vertical crease suggesting the buttocks in the rear. Not a word came from the Mattel team as it evaluated the strange-looking new doll. Breaking the silence, Ruth barked out with a laugh. With a dismissive wave of her hands that flashed her large emerald-cut diamond ring, she declared, Why, he ain't got no balls! There was a breathless pause in the room before everyone started laughing. It was, quote, A hearty, good-natured, confident laugh, recalled Joe Whitaker. As it finally subsided, I noticed a few pair of eyes locking, quiet smiles, a nod or two of the head. You know, that's that is some very flowery language to describe the, the, the non-genitalia of a uh, kid's action toy. Um, you gotta give it to Ruth, Ruth, Ruth in that one. That, that, that was a good, that was a good one. That was a good joke. Yeah, she did call it as she saw it, and. But now, this even, story... now I'm curious about, like, what what this doll looked like, but I'm kind of afraid what will happen if I Google, like, G.I. Joe naked, so... Hey, I, I, I'll do that for you. All right, thank, uh, thank you for your sacrifice, yeah. soldier. <laughs> You're doing your part. <laughs> well, you know what they say, knowing is half the battle. Um, <laughs> Look how weird looking his body is, like... Yeah, it... 
well, keep in mind, these G.I. Joes were completely outfitted with cloth clothing and were kind of designed to be a little bit more bulky. Kind of a bit of a skinny mini under all the under the jackets, you know? You know, yeah, they did really make uh, a twink doll. Yeah. So this story isn't just indicative of Ruth's wit and brash sense of humor, but it is also a clear demonstration of how Ruth would oftentimes savor her position as one of the few women corporate executives during the time. Uh, by many accounts, Ruth looked at her position as a point of pride rather than a systemic failure to equitably distribute power, where despite the 1960s were seeing drastic changes for women within the workforce and everyday life, Ruth did not seem particularly keen on using her position within Mattel to elevate other women, considering, you know, when you think about like what kind of stuff is happening in the 60s, we're dealing with um, the birth control becoming widely available. Uh, we're seeing more women not getting married, you know, flower power and the beginnings of second wave feminism, which Ruth was very much on the record at this time of rejecting. So I'm wondering what, what her, her reasoning was. We, it kind of gets into some of that. So nowadays there's this kind of idea of the pick me. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of like sort of like the not like the other girls type archetype. Yeah, there's some big N-log energy coming off of Ruth here. Uh, so one story I found told of a woman named Alex Layard who was working up through varying management positions in Mattel only to be ignored for key promotions in favor of her male colleagues by the different executives, including Ruth. In another story, a manager named Sandy Dannon discovered that women within Mattel were drastically being underpaid uh, compared to their male counterparts. And despite Dannon going on to lead a protest that would result in a 25 to 30 percent increase for all women staff, Ruth purportedly took some convincing to actually let that happen. Hmm. Yeah, according to Robin Gerber's biography, quote, Ruth believed that most women did not want business success as much as men did. Where a male executive was catered to when he came home, a professional woman still had to do the catering and not act. As Ruth put it, like she's doing her family a big fat favor. Hmm. Yeah, like I said, big N-log energy right there. Lots of kind of assumptions going on there. Yeah, it's definitely like... You kind of see in, like, a person like Ruth is sort of like, you know, I got mine by just kind of doing what the men did, you know, and not really shaking the boat. You know, she picked herself up from her bootstraps. So, yeah. So, in a way, when you, she sees people who are like, hey, maybe we should actually change things, she's like, well, you know, I was able to find success in this business without things changing, so why should we change it, you know? Yeah, which I think there are some elements of that kind of instinct that for someone, if you're not being very introspective about it, you can kind of see how someone might come to that conclusion. Not to justify that, but considering the kind of barriers that she had already overcome, you know being 
a Jewish woman from a family of so many kids um, starting up a company with her husband and dealing with all those different kinds of uh, difficulties when starting a successful corporation. This is one of those rare cases of someone actually being, to a degree, a self-made millionaire. Like, because it, it is one of those actual instances where you do, someone did start from a relatively... Now, granted, Ruth did have uh, different things that did give her the advantage. If she hadn't moved in with her sister when she was so young, I doubt she would have gotten certain opportunities. If uh, she wasn't... If she and Elliot weren't at the right place in the right time when plastic manufacturing was going on, who knows? Uh, heck, even the fact that they managed to stay the single exclusive sponsors for this successful TV show with Disney, a lot of stuff had to go right. And, oh no, I think sometimes when people reach that kind of success, there's that instinct to kind of, you know, treat it as a bruise to the ego, if anyone ever points out those kind of advantages you get. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I'm kind of thinking about, like, that comment she made about, like, women don't want to work because they have to, like, take care of the kids. It's like, you know, as a rich lady, she, that's probably not something that is as you know, maybe big for her because, like, she can afford mm -hmm. to, like, hire help and stuff like that. Yep. It's like... yep, that was something... Uh, this biography goes on the record multiple times about how Ruth was absolutely dog shit at a lot of those stereotypical housewife uh, duties. She purportedly wasn't great at... I mean, she was fine at cooking. She didn't like cleaning the house. Like... You know, she was, like I said, big N-log energy, and she, she did spend a lot of her time uh, having her children be cared for by different staff, as well as, like, all that kind of stuff, so... It's almost like, it's almost like from her mind, if for women who don't want to just be, like, housewives, the solution isn't that, like, men should, like, take up equal care of the housework, it's that you know, some women who are ambitious enough can just get rich enough where they don't have to do housework, you know? Yeah, that's, I, it's a very uh, lean-in mm -hmm. kind of idea yeah. for some folks. So, yeah, um, it is interesting. So despite Ruth doing very little to help the other woman within Mattel overcome these obstacles, by the end of the 1960s, the company would actually have more women in executive and managerial positions than any other toy company in America, which some did point to as a sign of victory within the fight for women's equality to enter the workforce during the second wave feminist movement. However, anytime Ruth was associated with feminist rhetoric, her big go-to joke in response would be that she only got her position by, quote, sleeping with the boss. Oh, God. Yeah. Which, to give Elliot some credit, Ruth would praise her husband for tolerating some of the sexual harassment that she would face in her life 
in order to achieve their business goals. Though many of these accounts seem to chalk this up to just the sheer obliviousness on Elliot's part rather than any sort of stalwart support. Yeah. There's a lot of complex kind of stuff going on. Lots of mixed feelings, though... One example of Ruth's particularly callous management style could be seen in her treatment of the head designer, Jack Ryan, the guy who was actually in charge of a lot of the actual engineering that went into, like, a lot of these products. During his time at Mattel, Ryan was known for creating not just Barbie, uh, but also the Hot Wheels car line, which also skyrocketed Mattel's level of success as well as perfecting the design of Barbie with the patented clicking knee joints and twist and turn waist. Like, Emma, you know how, like, in Barbie dolls, like, the plastic legs kind of, like, will click and you can kind of bend the knees? Uh, yes, kind of. Have you ever, um, seen, like, a Barbie doll with, like, the plastic taken off? Of the legs? Uh, no. It's a weird little wire kind of system. It's very interesting where it kind of resembles a deer leg a little bit. Where it would have a hard plastic shell within the more softer resin. That would kind of allow it to like click in place with a little spring mechanism. Causing where it had like these gears and could allow it to bend, but because it was encased in, like, this so softer resin, it gave the illusion that it's, like, skin. Okay. As for, like, the twist and turn waist, that's, like, s kind of similar from, like, the G.I. Joe's thing, except um, by twisting uh, Barbie's waist, she it kind of, like, would cause her back to bend a little bit back and kind of, like, kind of like she's sticking out her boobs. And, like, she's posing, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, he was known for designing this, but uh, you want to know what else uh, Jack Ryan was known for designing? Lay it on me. He was known for briefly working for Raytheon to help design the Sparrow and Hawk guided missile systems, a medium-range semi-active radar homing air-to-air -air missile and surface-to-air missile system, respectively. Oh, so... Yeah. Uh... uh... Kind of, kind of, kind of mix, mix manufacturing, you know, like you know, yeah, he's really diversifying that portfolio. Yeah, you know? sometimes you gotta make a doll, sometimes you gotta build a bomb. Yeah, mixed bag. And in addition to causing massive levels of suffering through the, these missile systems, which would be used in places like Vietnam and the, and I believe are still somewhat being used by military today. Don't quote me on that. Um. Ryan was also known for causing lots of harm within Mattel, as he was had a reputation for belittling and humiliating his male underlings on a daily basis, and also sexually harassing his women staff somehow more frequently. Oh, great guy. Yeah, I gotta say, there are too many stories. Emma, I was looking through a lot of these different accounts. There are way too many stories of Ryan taking advantage of attractive women that he hired to list here. But I do want to note one particular incident in a meeting where Ruth once attacked him by saying, if you put more attention to your job than hiring pussy women to decorate the department, we might get something done. To which Ryan responded, well, I'll worry about my department if you just worry about marketing. 
I'm I'm wondering what she meant by pussy woman. I don't know. Those were the what? Maybe that was like the terminology back then in the seventies, where like loose women were called pussy women. I I don't know. That's that's some that's some some old timey sexism there. Like, <laughs> yeah, no, they. They don't make sexism like they used to. Let me tell you, like... Yeah, we aren't really calling ladies broads anymore. No, man, despite some of their best efforts, like, I mean, I don't know. It does make me sometimes wonder, like, what would be, like, which is kind of worse, that sort of Andrew Tate style of misogyny or this. Because, like, you have to imagine it's the, like... You have to imagine it's the older one that's still worse, but yeah. Hey, Andrew, Andrew Tate is more fringe than I feel like a lot of this stuff was, but still kind of sort of like it's kind of seething underbelly. Like, yeah. like he says he says things that like your garden variety misogynist like wishes they could say, you know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So, yeah, I will say this is probably where... I actually know, because this is the kind of timeline that people like Andrew Tate want to get back to. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oof. So, this isn't great. Uh, yeah, Ryan doesn't come out looking great from a lot of these stories. But because Ryan was such a talented engineer at Mattel... And the man who helped to make Barbie a physical reality, the handlers would often forgive these transgressions, especially as Ryan set about designing a new male counterpart to Barbie named Ken. We love so, to see it. Our Kenbo brought to the yeah, light. Brought to life indeed. So when Ken was being designed, a big point of contention between Ruth and the design team was that lack of a bulge. Yep. Yep. Uh, That, if that G.I. Joe story, like, that G.I. Joe story might make it seem like it was a one-off thing. No, this was, like, something she would consistently come to clash with the design team over. Like, she would admonish the team for not having the guts to naturally endow Ken with genitalia, which is a little bit weird considering that this doll was named after her now 15-year-old son. Like, you know... Oh, to be a, a, a fly on the wall for those conversations. Like, I, this is obviously something she's passionate about. I mean, you know, you look at the G.I. Joe, and he does pretty much just look like he's wearing flesh underwear. But... Yeah. But, I know, it's been a, it's been a while since I've... Uh, physically handled a Ken doll or a Barbie doll, but doesn't Ken kind of have, like, a bit of a bulge? Like, it's obviously all skin, but there's kind of, like... Yeah, it's, like, yeah, but it's still kind of flat down there. Like, she was kind of looking for something a little bit more detailed. Okay. Yeah. So, unfortunately for us, the design team ended up winning this battle and denied the world of Ken's dick. And Ken would soon join the rapidly expanding entourage of Barbie, including characters like Midge, Skipper, and many more, all the while Barbie sales rapidly expanded into the 1970s. 
you might wonder a little bit how the real-life Ken Handler was feeling about this. By all accounts, Ken was not a fan of the doll being named after him. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's understandable. Despite Mattel garnering massive levels of success and becoming a Fortune 500 company, this success would be cut short after Ruth had discovered a number of strange lumps that were developing in her breast. After a number of biopsies, doctors concluded that the lumps were cancerous, and she would have to have a mastectomy. The procedure would result in the removal of not just her left breast, but as well as some of her muscle tissue and lymph nodes, which resulted in permanent muscle and nerve damage that she would still experience for the rest of her life. This left Ruth in a pretty precarious position, as such procedures had this sort of shameful reputation in the 1970s, least of all for the woman that had... Uh, least of all for a woman that was the face of a company known for promoting a certain form of femininity that Ruth felt that she was no longer a part of. If we were writing the Ruth Handler biopic, this would be like the second act conflict zone. Like yeah. after we do the big montage thing, Meryl Streep would go into the doctors and it would get all sad and stuff. Yeah. That is so, sad that she felt that way. There, remember how like, those years ago where, like, Angelina Jolie got, like, a double mastectomy to, like, prevent breast cancer. And then there was, like, media outlets that were, like, judgy on her about it. Wait, what? You don't remember that? No. Oh, my God. Yeah, but, yeah, I remember, like, my mom being, like, like, I don't know why she did that or it was bad that she did that. And it's like, what... Who cares? What? Why would we care about this? Like, Why would we care about that? That is so... That is freaking wild. Oh my god. Yeah. Yes. How dare you not, like, keep these body parts that could result in potential death and harm? That, that we feel have some kind... That we have some kind of ownership of. Like... That is... Oh my god. That is... Ugh. Oh, that leaves a gross taste in my mouth. Yep, yeah. And what year was this? I believe it was like the mid two thousands. Oh my god, something like that. If that's how it was in the mid two thousands, I'd hate to imagine how things were like in the seventies. I can. Yep, it, yep. It could not have been great. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. But to make matters worse, the rest of Lu Ruth's life was also not faring much better. Um, Barbara would come home a couple of weeks after the surgery to tell her mother that she was getting a divorce after 11 years. And meanwhile, Ken was developing a number of rumors that he was a closeted gay man, and she and Elliot were being slowly ousted from Mattel as the sales of Hot Wheels and Barbie began to slow down. What, what, what um, time period was this? So this is all happening at, at around, like, 1970 through 1971. Yeah. Like, the early part. Yeah, this was, like, uh, 1970 and 1971 weren't great years for the handlers. Yeah, because I'm wondering if Barbie and Hot Wheels are kind of on the download at that point, what is, like, kind of Mattel's big thing? Or do they have a big thing at that moment? They don't really have a big thing at this point. Mm -hmm. um, like, with the success of, like, um, like G.I. Joe's and 
uh, other kinds of different toys that are starting to become a little bit more popular. Like, this is when we're starting to see, like, early console compute, like, consoles like the Atari 2600 happening. Hasbro is knocking it out of the park with not just G.I. Joe, but also with Rock'em Sock'em Robots, uh, those Tiger Electronic Football games. Uh, oh, Fisher-Price is also becoming kind of big, mm-hmm. which technically... Uh, hang on, let me double check. I believe Fisher-Price is a subsidiary of Mattel, so that is kind of their biggest moneymaker right now, but the rest of their items are not doing super great. Um, and let's see. Um, yeah. So Mattel isn't doing great, um, because even though like Fisher Price is kind of picking up some of the slack, Hot Wheels and Barbie are the biggest moneymakers Mattel has. And once those sales start to slow down, things start getting a little bit more tense. So to slightly combat this, uh, the handlers embarked on a strange endeavor to purchase entertainment outside of toys. Children's entertainment that they felt was going to be much more long-lasting. You want to guess what they decided to purchase? Um, okay, children's entertainment. What what year is this? 1970. 19, still. 1970. Uh, what, so, yeah, Emma, think what is going to be something that's going to just be, like, super long-lasting, just something that's really going to stand the test of time? I don't got to guess. You got to give it to me. They decided to purchase the Ringling Brothers Circus, which Ruth saw as a virtual oh, money machine. Yeah. The circus, the circus that's all good old animal circus that's always going to be around. Yeah, that's always going to be around and definitely going to be a big source of entertainment. I mean, does Greatest Showman not show that the market is still there? <sighs> I can't believe you brought that freaking movie up to me. I, ugh. Ugh. Anyway, anyway, so the handlers ended up purchasing 3.46 million shares of stock in the Ringling Brothers Circus, because apparently circuses were big enough to be publicly traded on the stock market for some reason, and that sale ended up going for around $47 million, and... This would be a pretty big purchase that would be seen as, like, a pretty risky endeavor. But the handlers did expect to recuperate much of that money spent during the 1971 holiday season. Although... Now now I'm just having to imagine, like, the handlers having to have a conversation with the family being like, we're not doll people anymore, we're circus people now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's... mm. Mm, I can't imagine that going great, because, yeah, well, Pack up a lot the of this is, too. yeah, it, oh god, yep, they're going to clown school, and it's gonna go great. Yep. Unfortunately for the handlers, um, the United States was undergoing what historians now call the Nixon shock, because good old Richie Nix, old Big Dick Nixon ended up conducting a lot of different, somewhat hasty measures 
to combat rising inflation seen throughout 1971. And the most significant scene of this were wage and price freezes, where um, employer, like they had to stop people from being paid more, and they put larger surcharges on imports, and they also had a unilateral cancellation of direct international convertibility of the United States dollar to gold, which in fancy economic terms, that basically means that people got paid less, uh, people charged more for importing stuff between the United States and other countries, and it was way harder to convert United States money to other forms of currency, which are, you know, you could probably imagine, Emma, pretty important if you're an internationally traded company. Yep. Yeah, yeah. And all the part of a lot of this was actually due because of a large uh growing public debt that was incurred over the Vietnam War after despite the fact that by now Hundreds of thousands of people are openly protesting and calling for the United States to pull out. But nope, we got to stay in Vietnam. We got to stop them from being commies. I was wondering, was uh, Ken ever enlisted in Vietnam? Would he have been around that age? or mm, he Technically, Barbie and Ken in their original incarnations were 16, so no. I'm not talking about the dolls. I'm talking about the, their kid. <laughs> oh, oh, shoot. Ken Handler? No, he was... Um, he was only 15, so he would have been too young. Okay, okay. Although I am I am uh, imagining what would happen uh, if if there was a, a Barbie thing where Ken got enlisted in Vietnam. Now I'm not in other stuff I'm thinking about. Yeah, that would be... I mean, that'd be an interesting departure for the Barbie cinematic universe. You know, <laughs> Barbie in The Deer Hunter... Or uh, Barbie Apocalypse Now, uh, Barbie Platoon, all the hits. Barbie, uh, yeah, uh, Miss Saigon. Oh God, oh God. Musical. I'm not gonna Google that because I know for a, that might lead to some bad results. I would not put it past Mattel to make a culturally insensitive. Um, East Asian Barbie doll. So yeah, the 1971 holiday season ended up proving very difficult for Americans due to a lot of these economic factors, resulting in much lower toy sales and Mattel shares losing about $4 million by the end of the year. So money's flying everywhere at Mattel. So, you know, they're spending a lot of money on the circus, uh, they're not getting as much revenue. Tariffs are causing uh, the international manufacturing to become even more expensive. It's not a great time. And perhaps in an attempt to stabilize their finances, many within the company would conduct bill and hold schemes with company stocks. Which, um, Emma, do you know what a bill and hold scheme is? Um, I do not, but before, before you go on, I googled it, and there is a Miss Saigon Barbie doll. Not as a tie-in to the musical, but just a Miss Saigon Barbie, and I want you to, I want you to take a look oh, at this real quick. Oh, God. 
Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Give it to me. I'm afraid. Like... Oh no! Helicopter. Oh no! Oh no! With an attack helicopter behind her, Mattel, what are you doing? Oh, that's oh, this is so bad. This was Barbie made in 1996. Barbie has seen the horrors. I'm seeing the horrors right now. Oh my god. Uh, if you want to describe what, what the image is. Yeah, we're just seeing blonde Barbie with her hair kind of like cut into a short bob and being curled in that sort of stereotypical... Uh, it's not a full-on geisha-like stereotype haircut, but something that is definitely meant to evoke those kinds of hairstyles. But she is wearing a full-on kimono, uh, a white kimono with like lace at the top. That is not... How kimonos, I don't think that's how kimonos work. And there are a bunch of these flowers, and right behind there's this cloth little, um, I guess background image with an attack helicopter on it. <laughs> just the, like, th the things you find. Just the things you find. The audacity, I, like, Do hang on. You think Barbie was, has PTSD? I mean... I can't imagine it being a great time for anybody involved, but oof, oofa doofa. God, what was I even talking? Okay, yeah, uh, bill and hold schemes. All right, yeah. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so a bill and hold scheme is essentially when someone creates a bill of sale for a good, in this case, stock for Mattel, but doesn't actually transfer ownership until a later date. It's kind of seen as this kind of risky investment where if you want to get a... It's basically like a promise of like, hey, if you give us some capital now, like, we have a higher chance of getting a, like, big return after our stocks go to the moon. Which, I don't know, Emma, can you see any potential problems that could come from this? Yeah, it's kind of like, yeah, 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 the money will be there, but you just gotta, you just gotta wait. Gotta wait. Yeah, you just gotta wait. They, Bill and Hold Schemes don't have a great reputation, and for pretty understandable reasons. However, many of such sales were possible, since Mattel was one of those companies that had a reputation for bump, uh, bouncing back from many different financial setbacks. Like, if you think back to the initial lack of success uh, Mattel had with Barbie, their company lost a little value with that. Um, like, there was some financial precarity when they started making Hot Wheels. And not to mention, considering that um, toy companies tend to have their biggest booms during the holiday seasons and going up greatly in sales... It's not 100% unreasonable that someone might see this as a less risky investment than the name might imply. However, by the start of 1972, 450,000 shares of Mattel were dumped by one of the biggest company investors after the merger with the Ringling Brothers and the underwhelming holiday season caused the company to lose millions of dollars. And following these massive losses, 
The first of many lawsuits would be directed towards Ruth Elliott and the other Mattel executives from Angry Shareholders, who accused the executives of selling off $118,000 worth of their own stock before the news of the merger was shared and resulted in the loss of the company value. And once seen as untouchable within the toy world, Ruth was now a recovering cancer survivor, being ousted from the empire she helped to create while being accused of insider trading. Uh, you, 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 got, you got a lot of, like, white-collar crime bullshit. This is some peak white-collar crime bullshit. Like, you see what I mean when this would be a great second-act kind of conflict uh, for the Ruth Handler biopic? Mm -hmm. Like, give it a year. Like, when they eventually make that sucker, just, listener, remember, you heard it here first. Uh, just, why capitalism? Yeah. That's a question I ask myself every day. Why did we do this to ourselves? I find it so wild that, like, you can sue companies if they aren't as profitable as they expected to be. That just feels so weird, because, like... I know part of it is because of potential fraud accusations, but it feels like one of those things where, like, if you're a rich enough businessman, stockholder person, like, even if your investments don't pay off, you could potentially still make boatloads of money by suing people for not being as profitable as you wanted them to. I well, don't know. Well, that's it seems like a real great sustainable that, system. That's the thing with capitalism. It's not just about making enough money it's about making all of the money yeah gotta get you gotta love that perpetual growth a thing that is definitely feasible and possible <laughs> and sustainable yep so yeah in the so fast forward a little bit in the summer of 1974 the SCC acted on a complaint filed by Mattel stockholders, who believed that the handlers had bypassed shareholder approval and sold massive amounts of Mattel stock before the news of the record low earnings had, were made public. Despite Mattel portraying themselves as an advocate for both women and consumers, there was an atmosphere of distrust within the executive levels of the company. Many executives took to actively avoiding Ruth and Elliot, blaming her specifically for the company's losses, and seeking out a replacement. Okay. The rising hostility and increasing investigations from the SEC, the handlers would retire from Mattel later that year in 1974. Which, I don't know, how do you think Ruth's doing by this point, Emma, considering everything she's going through? I mean, did did their circus plans lead to anything profitable? Ironically, it was partially the executives, majority stockholders of the Ringling Brothers people who were partially responsible for ousting them from Mattel. Like, um, with their buyout of, like, a lot of the stock for the Ringling Brothers, a bunch of other executives who I couldn't be fucked to list their names here were brought into Mattel's board of directors and the executives and ended up being, like, pretty anti-handler. So... Okay. Technically, I guess the um, 
I guess the circus itself, it wasn't, like, terrible, but it wasn't the big moneymaker that they were expecting. So, yeah, as you can imagine, Ruth was not taking this all very well. Not only had she and her husband lost the company they had spent the last 25 years building up, they also had lost the doll that Ruth had brought into the world. Which, if you remember back in part two, Emma, like, the kind of level of obsession that they kind of characterized Ruth having for creating Barbie, I don't know, I find that very interesting to consider, uh, like... I, I don't know. I can't imagine what it would be like to just put so much of your time, energy, and heart into, like, making a thing. Having it be a physical thing in the world only for it to be no longer something you owned. Well, yeah, same with Ruth. Like, that was, like, her kid, basically. Literally. Yeah. You know? and then... Yeah. For the next couple of years, Ruth was reportedly consumed with bitterness and resentment over the loss of Mattel uh, and the continued investigations from the SEC. In an interview, she once remarked, Under the circumstances, some people would have seen a psychiatrist. Others would have blown their brains out. Someone else would have escaped to a deserted island. I tried a little of each. Jeez. Gee, yeah, no, this, this... Were you expecting it to get this bleak? Yeah, it's kind of a bummer, like... Yeah, it's... It's not great. It's it's going to get a little bit worse before it gets better also. Mm -hmm. uh, for the next couple of years, Ruth would be left directionless without Barbie. And she mostly took to gambling in the nearby city of Gardenia or Las Vegas. Driving her fancy cars to and from the casinos, playing at the craps tables, and even briefly considering becoming a professional gambler, which... Man, that, that's a, that's a thing. Yeah, yeah, they, that's just something that some people do. They just make their income by just going to Vegas or Reno and just like gambling at the craps tables. And that's just all they do. Man, if being a stock trader sounds like a depressing existence, I'm loath to think of a more depressing kind of job than professional gambler, if I'm going to be honest. But it's like, that's like not even like a job. That's just like being unemployed with a gambling addiction. Yeah, that's actually true. <laughs> yeah, no, that is. Yeah, being a professional gambler, that is basically. Yeah, that's true. I mean, let's be real. Stock traders do also seem to low key have gambling addictions. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, stock trading, it's kind of basically like the the bougie version of uh, gambling, so. Yeah, but. I, I, I would oof. argue that maybe that isn't a job either. That's fair, that's fair. So, there's, it's not great. Although that, that is me imagining a scenario where you meet like this kind of grizzled older woman, one boob at the bar, and she's like, yeah, I used to own Barbie. <laughs> My daughter, my daughter was the real Barbie. And then they took her away. <laughs> Those bastards at the circus took away my Barbie. <laughs> God, that's, that's gotta sound, like, without the context, that's gotta sound absolutely insane. <laughs> History's rad, y'all. Yeah, life is usually Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. <laughs> yeah, 
I gotta say, like, during this time as a quote-unquote professional gambler, I also read a number of stories of her winning and losing massive amounts of money with very little regard, all the while being prone to cursing out various casino employees when she was feeling particularly bitter. So, not a great time. And considering that Ruth was still recovering from her mastectomy, it's not hard to imagine the stigma of such a procedure not also weighing on her during that time. And you mentioned the whole one boob thing, but... One, she does tell a story about a time when she was being fitted for a prosthetic breast following her surgery. Uh, Lee Slater from the biography Barbie and Ruth wrote, Ruth had asked the sales clerk about a prosthetic. They had huddled, whispering and grimacing, and to Ruth's mind, drawing straws for who would fit her. Finally, the loser showed her into a dressing room and closed the curtain. When the clerk came back, she dangled a surgical brassiere with built-in pockets over the top of the curtain rod, clearly unwilling to see Ruth undressed. Next came the ill-formed lumpy globs that were the inserts. Ruth struggled to get them into the pockets. The sizes had no relation to bra size. She tried a six, too big. A five looked less awful. She brought one for home and one for the beach house and left feeling miserable. After that, Ruth explained to her audience, she gave away her form-fitting couture clothes and found anything shapeless and dull-colored that would cover her odd, malproportioned contours of her chest. God, that sucks. Like, yeah. the way how she was, like, treated by the employees over it, like... Had... Yeah, no... It is a thing where it's like, she is legit getting such a raw deal out of all of this. Like, mm-hmm. that, and that story that you told earlier of Angelina Jolie, it just, it kind of puts into perspective how similar kind of that stuff is. I don't know, it's interesting. But, like, some people just get, get really, really upset when they think about women having control of their bodies for some reason. For some reason. And also they get really mad when ever the biological reality of those bodies contrast with any idealized uh conceptions of what those bodies are you know emma it's almost as if hear me out here it's almost as if we have a very narrow view of femininity that doesn't leave people in a place where people are encouraged to feel emotionally healthy about their bodies i don't know what you're talking about henry it's obviously that she was just uh she failed at womanhood by getting cancer yeah you know if she was more of a woman oh god i'm not even gonna play into that bit because you just know there are some fucking weird ass turfs out there that do have that kind of weird mindset like (laughs) I don't know, gender essentialism does some, like, weird shit to your brain, I swear. Mm -hmm. Uh, But much of Handler's experiences do actually correlate with a widened knowledge about cancer throughout the 20th century. With the newer methods of understanding the human body, our technology progressed to where we also developed newer materials that could also induce diseases like cancer, including the chemicals that Mattel had used to create Barbie. 
Which, Emma, do you remember the special material that uh, Barbie was made out of? Um, you said plastic resin? It's a, yeah, It well, it's a specific acronym. I don't remember the acronym. Uh, PVC. Okay. Yeah, so while the hard resin of PVC, once it's fully processed and, like, all mushy and shaped into whatever kinds of things you want it to be, from dolls to pipes to lamps to whatever kind of stuff, uh, to very briefly shitty plastic furniture like the handlers were peddling in the 50s, um, that PVC, not a known carcinogen. However, the primary component in producing PVC is the gas vinyl chloride, a substance which is associated with an increased rate of liver, lung, and brain cancers through long, prolong- through prolonged exposures to the gas. Coincidentally, the very same year that Ruth and Elliot were being ousted from Mattel in August of 1974, the government had issued a ban on the usage of vinyl chloride in everyday consumer products, including paint removers, adhesives, and solvents. Uh, so, while there is no scientifically established link to breast cancer and vinyl chloride exposure, I do believe that this is worth noting because these harmful materials were mass-produced and distributed throughout the world due to companies like Mattel painting them as these miracle substances that could act as the basis for every consumer good under the sun, which is something that we will likely have to increasingly contend with as the harmful nature of materials like vinyl chloride call into question our reliance on the products made from them. Yeah. Remember when, like, humanity yeah. invented plastic and then it destroyed the world? I mean... Like, not to date this episode, but as we're recording right now, like, uh, there is the devastating uh, train derailment that happened in uh, Ohio, like, a couple weeks ago. Um, I don't know how much you've heard about that, Emma. Uh, it, from what I've heard, it's been pretty, pretty bad. Yeah, and the specific chemical that that train was transporting the chemical that was like causing all this problem, environmental problems to the water and air vinyl chloride. Hmm. The same one. Yeah, it is. It is interesting to consider. And it's also ironic because it was that same material of PVC that Ruth would use to help address the distress that she and other women with mastectomies were experiencing. For the longest time, such prosthetics were designed by men who would often look at products with scorn or apathy, using clinical terms like pad or inserts, and often con- failing to consider the actual appearance of the breast in relation to women's fashion. And... In the days following Ruth's departure from Mattel, she decided that she was going into the breast business and worked with the sculptor Peyton Macy to found the company Nearly Me, which would work to produce realistic and comfortable prosthetics for women who had underwent mastectomies. For Ruth, the work of this new company would be her remaining life's work, uh, 
as she hoped to provide a valuable service for other women like her. And for others, this stage in her life is framed as something akin to a reconciliation or redemption. According to Tom Kleninsky, who was credited for reviving the Barbie brand during the late 80s, no one was better at spotting trends. But she also had to get redemption, had to prove she was not a bad person. You know, it's it's pretty fitting. She was the lady who got famous by for putting boobs on a doll, and now she's giving boobs back to the world. She po- is. It's poetic. Um, yeah. Um, let me show you, like, a little quick picture of, like, what some of these nearly me prosthetics look like. Um, a bit different. Oh, I see. So, so we have the front and the back of this kind of uh, plastic insert on the front. It's got a, a little nipple on it, which yep. I think that that's, that's good that they're, like, making it, you know, anatomically correct. And we yep. get it, and when we get it from the back side, I'm kind of wondering what the point of, like, all the kind of ridges on it I is. think it's so that it could help better stick, you know, get putting some friction on it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Sort of like a fingerprint, kind of. We have those kind of things. And I should note, they do, um, Nearly Me's website do also sell, uh, like, smooth versions of these inserts. But, yeah, it's interesting. Although, honestly, my favorite product that Nearly Me sells, which I know that these are done, like, I know, I don't want to, like, be crass and, like, undervalue, like, the genuine, like, uh, utility and purpose that some of these items do. But at the same time, uh, for $25, you can buy... Uh, these little suction cup nipples. I I could I could see it. You know, sometimes people like you know, they'll lose their nipple in various ways, and it's like you yeah feel feel a lot I'm, more kind of. Uh, I'm just imagining like a young kid just like sticking those on like the refrigerator, not knowing what they are, and just. Seeing like a wall covered in nipples. You see, if if I went into someone's home and they had nipples on their refrigerator, I'd respect them. You know what? That's that's very that's very progressive of you, Emma. I need <laughs> that's that's the kind of energy that I need to aspire to be. Yes. Yeah. I fair enough. So yeah. It I don't know. This is a very interesting period in her life. Like I said, if someone was to eventually make the Ruth Handler biopic, once again, Mattel, hit us up. Uh, that moment of redemption would start to occur in the summer of 1976, when Ruth spoke at the inaugural meeting of Women at Mattel, a group of women employees who wished to join together and speak to the rising problems of gender inequality found within the American corporate workspace. Where Ruth once ignored the issues of workplace discrimination and sexism, she was now embracing that element of sisterhood found in sharing her experiences as one of the few women executives in America. As Ruth put it, I find that I enjoy women better than I enjoy men. My world has changed. I think I may have felt victimized by men. Which, that's like the 100% opposite of how she was when she was like a young girl. 
Yeah, and it's, and it's like complicated because, like, on the one hand, it's like, yeah, it's great that she came to these like feminist realizations, but it's kind of like, so now that y- it's not your money on the line, now you can speak out for women. It is, yeah, it is telling that it took her getting like pretty royally screwed over and greatly mistreated for her to kind of realize, hey, wait a minute. I guess women are getting a raw deal of things. Yeah. I don't know. It is interesting. Mm-hmm. But by the time Ruth was working to market and promote Nearly Me through a newly formed parent company called Ruth on Industries, she made a point of wishing to build up a woman-led company that would hire women who had also undergone mastectomies. And in a particularly bittersweet twist of fate, one such woman who Ruth sought to hire was Alex Liard, who you might have remember was that f- former manager of Mattel who Ruth had often ignored, but now was being hired at Nearly Me after she got a mastectomy in the recent years herself. Like, I could just picture that, uh, this scene myself. Like, again, if you're making the the Ruth Handler biopic, Alex Layard would definitely be a character someone would throw in for an early scene during, like, to show off, like, what an asshole Ruth is, uh, as she, like, tries to get that manager position, and she's like, ah, you're not good enough. But then there's, like, an emotional thing where she's looking at, like, a list of women to potentially hire, and she stops and recognizes the name, and we see that same actress as Alex Layard walk in with old person makeup to signal the passage of time. And she's Uh, played by Anna Taylor-Joy. Emma? (laughs) No joke? Yeah. That was my literal exact casting that I had in mind. Ah, our minds, our brains. Our minds. We know. What the hell? (laughs) <laughs> that is amazing. That is amazing. Hang on, let me see if I could actually find a, a picture of this lady. Uh, I bet she looks nothing like a Taylor Joy. I imagine not, but you know, that would be a pretty... What, what are people going to do? Look it up? <laughs> nope. Nope. Um, When I look up Alex Layard... Oh, man. I'm getting a bunch of pictures of, like, this cosmetic surgery stuff. I'm not doing that. Okay. Uh... Let's see if I can find. Yeah, I cannot find any pictures of this woman. If anyone, oh, for all we know, uh, she could have looked like Anna Taylor Joy. You we'll know, she defo could have. She defo could have. The, um, the the only one we haven't cast who would play the creepy guy. Oh, Jack Ryan. Oh, mm-hmm. hang on. I do have a, uh, I do have a pic of Jack Ryan from Mattel. This guy is. Dude's got Joe Pesci energy. Okay. Um, or if, I mean, it would be very appropriate casting, honestly. But he's the kind of motherfucker I could see Kevin Spacey playing. God, he does look like Kevin Spacey. He does look like Kevin Spacey, and man, if they casted him, he would be. It would be even more irony to it i man there was also a lot i could go into with jack ryan himself did you know he was fucking married to zsa gabor from 1975 to 1976 who's zsa gabor 
Zsa oh my god, she was a Hungarian-American socialite and actress. She was, like, known for being, like, one of the big it girls throughout the, like, 50s, 60s, and was also known for, like, having a bunch of husbands over the course of her life. Mm-hmm. Um, Let me see, what would was her most famous movie that she was in? I probably, um, let's see, uh... Oh my god, she was in the lead role of the original 1952 Moulin Rouge. Oh, okay. Yeah, she also starred in, uh, wait, what? 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 Nightmare on Elm Street 3 Dream Warriors? What the hell? What? She was in that movie? She was in Naked Gun 2 and a half, The Smell of Fear. What the? F- what a career. What a career, More indeed. trajectory. That is... Yeah, no. Uh, Zsa Zsa Gabor was kind of known for being, like, one of the big... Uh, the big kind of sex symbols of the time period. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And he was br- briefly married to Jack Ryan. Uh, although, Zsa... Hang on. He had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine... Husbands. Okay, so Jaja did beat Jack in the number of spouses because uh, she ended up having nine husbands, whereas Jack only had one, two, three, four, five wives, um, and presumably hundreds of mistresses and all that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> By the way, Jack Jack Ride, absolute bastard, uh, dies of a debilitating. Well, he has a debilitating stroke in 1989, and he does end up committing suicide two years later, And that, which, you know, that's sad, but I don't know. Like, any instance of suicide and stuff is, like, a downer, but... It's like, sometimes, sometimes there is a bit of schadenfreude, even though it doesn't erase the harm that was done when you learn that, uh, you know, someone who was terrible yeah, dying. died a miser- in a miserable way, you know? It seems like most of that was incurred by the stroke, though, so it's like... Yeah. I, I, it's... I don't know. It's... It, it is unfortunate. Uh, but, yeah, it, it is an interesting thing to consider. Uh, but... I don't know. If we're actually casting Jack Ryan in the biopic, um, oh god, who would we actually put for her? Because he does look a lot like Kevin Spacey, but a- absolutely not. Um, you know, like... I, I don't want to be the person who's going to keep on bringing up Paul Dano, but I mean, <laughs> he's been you know, on my mind I could a see lot. Dana. <laughs> I mean, I could also see Dano playing him. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Or, or like, try- I don't know. Jesse Eisenberg. Oh my God. Oh my God. You just know the Academy would love it if Jesse Eisenberg s- slapped on a bunch of like prosthetic fat on his face. Like, the, oh man. Boring actor, Mom. Best boring actor. It's in the bag. Yeah, no, that is right there. God. M- again, Mattel, hit us up. I will write the shit out of this screenplay. Um, But. Yeah, uh, so, 
it's a, this is an interesting time period for Ruth. By all accounts, everything at Nearly Me was looking pretty good for the people working there. And in reading the testimonies of those being fitted for these prosthetics, it does paint a genuine picture of Ruth providing a vital service to different women facing a very heavily stigmatized condition. That said, there is something to be said about the ways that such products do capitalize on traditional notions of feminine beauty within the process of cancer recovery. I think there are some vital critiques of the ways that such products market themselves as key components to the healing process, not to mention the ways that they that such marketing kind of reinforces that a woman is incomplete without breast. Yeah, it's but like at the yeah. I don't know, it's like the idea that, like, you know, we should be striving more to, like, we shouldn't care if a woman has breasts or not, and that doesn't make her yeah. more or less of a woman. But I can see, like, you know, if you are a woman at the time, how, like, having something like this available would be, could be very healing, helping you feel more normal again after recovery. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a few different things. It is, a, yeah, it's complicated. I mean, I can't deny that for so, like, for so many women who would have undergone a very historically traumatic procedure, products like Nearly Me are, even to this day, instrumental in helping hundreds of thousands of, like, people who undergo mastectomies. Yeah, because it's, it's like, well, it's because there's this kind of stigma attached to it and there are women who are like hesitant to get these life-changing surgeries that can save their life uh -huh. because like it they don't want to have to deal with the stigma of not having of not rest so like you know having prosthetics helps like encourage those people who maybe otherwise might not have gotten the surgery you know yeah exactly and i mean Far be it for me also to, like, you know, say what is, like, a proper way to embody femininity, you know? It, it's, you know, like, it, it's a thing where, like, ideally, it, again, it, it shouldn't fucking matter. Like, mm -hmm. like, people should just, like, do what they want with their bodies, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, maybe not fucking care about this kind of stuff yeah like people people be are so freaking weird about this stuff i swear yep it was like i said it's it's a case where it was it did help hundreds of thousands of women and probably the most heavily publicized example of this whole phenomenon was seen in 1978 when ruth helped fit the then first lady betty ford for a prosthetic breast following a mastectomy that Ford underwent in 1974. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, this is, like, one of the big highlights that, like, a lot of Ruth Handler biographers love to note. And people who are covering... This was, like, a pretty big event, too. Um, like, man, the, the days when, like, the idea of a first lady getting a mastectomy being, like, the this kind of like crazy big thing that's kind of happening like i don't know it's one of those things where it it it's kind of wild to consider 
that in comparison to like the kind of stuff that like modern people lose their shit over when it comes to presidents. Mm. Like, could you imagine like, hang on, wait a minute. Gerald Ford was a Republican, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a Republican. He ended up. Yeah, because he pardoned Nixon. That's right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, no, Fox News definitely would have, like, gone easy on him uh, and Betty Ford. But If you want to feel depressed, I looked it up on Google, and that Angelina Jolie double mastectomy thing happened in 2013. Oh, my God. Get your shit together, guys. Like, absolutely embarrassing. Like, like, I host a podcast about Barbies, and I can definitively say y'all are a bunch of fucking dork-ass losers. <laughs> like, get a fucking life. My God. Anyway, um, yeah. So, this is, like, a pretty... Oh, I, I do also want to have, like, a brief tangent with uh the whole prosthetic process. Like, most of the generic inserts that uh, Handler would sell with Nearly Me kind of had a similar shape. However, um, like, for higher-end consultations, you can actually make a custom-molded breast insert that is actually specifically molded to resemble your, like, actual, like, boobs. And it would be a thing where, like, you would have, like, a little plaster mold and... Uh, I mentioned earlier that he, uh, Handler, uh, like, worked with a sculptor by the name of Peyton Messi. Uh, Peyton was known for, like, making a bunch of different prosthetics, uh, primarily for Hollywood films before this point. (laughs) Yeah, it was interesting. Um, because it's the basic same principle, but, yeah, they would end up custom fitting, uh, First Lady Ford for uh, a prosthetic. Uh, However, while Ruth's work with Nearly Me could be considered an overall positive endeavor, the SEC lawsuits against Mattel continued to pull her back into Washington to appeal before a federal grand jury. And in the days following her meeting with the First Lady, Ruth would be indicted on 10 counts of mail fraud, making false statements to the SEC, and making false statements both in her registration statements and to federally insured banks. Hey, boy. White collar crimes, baby. I know, not the banks. I know, the poor banks. Leave the banks. Oh no, the the poor federally insured banks. What will they do if they can only make a lot of money instead of all of the money? Yeah. Oh, man. It's one of those things where it's like, on one hand, like, these kind of white-collar crimes, it it just kind of seems so ludicrous to me because it's like, it's more money than any of these people could actually want. But at the same time, it, it, it does make me wonder, like, uh, who was, like, if, because there are cases of, like, actual white-collar crime that do end up screwing over some people, and I have to imagine that, like, there were probably some people that did legit end up, like, being put in a hard position thanks to, like, 
the kind of schemes that some of the Mattel executives pulled, but it does feel a little bit interesting that, like, Ruth did get this a particular level of attention with a lot of this. Yeah, because I don't know. What is, what is Elliot during, doing during all this time? Oh, he's also indicted on this as well. Uh, like, okay. Although he noticeably does not get as big of a sentence as her. Huh. Yeah. Mm. Don't know what that's about. Like, so, but was like while she was doing her uh, the her company, what was he doing? Oh, dude was just kind of vibing, like uh, like no gambling. I could, uh, no. Elliot Handler didn't seem to be spending a lot of time gambling. Instead, he was mostly like, uh, basically, uh. Literally, the biography kind of drops off after he leaves Mattel in the 70s, um, where, yeah, he would have kind of just, by all accounts, it seemed like he kind of just, like, just kind of retired, chilling at home. Yeah, pretty much. He was most, because he and uh, Ruth were grandparents by this point, so, like, Yeah. yeah, I don't know. But and that's what most rich people should just do. It's just, you know, at a certain point, you just just go home and don't yeah, bother like, anyone anymore. Y'all won. Y'all won capitalism. You did it. Yeah. You did the thing. So, like, I don't know. It's a thing where, like, it, it does make me convinced that, like, yeah, money does something to your brain. Like, it it, it does seem to legit, like, mess with, like, your way of thinking and the way you see the world it's i don't know i don't know it's yeah um but it is a thing where uh following this conviction ruth would be sentenced to 2500 hours of community service and a fifty-seven thousand dollar fine a sentence which for all the hubbub and ways that the biography paints this as this terrible, arduous journey kind of feels a little bit lax. I don't know. What do you think, Emma? Does Yeah, I mean, she didn't go to jail, so... Yeah, she got community service. By all accounts, this kind of just feels like pretty people are making too big a deal with some of that. Yeah, it's kind of more just like a slap on the wrist type thing. Yeah. But in reading... Ruth's biography, um, like, by all, I mean, I should say, I don't want to be too hard on, like, if I was to, uh, like, level any criticism towards, uh, Robin Gerber's biography, Barbie and Ruth, which I will say I do overall recommend, it was a very big help in writing this episode, she does paint this whole ordeal as if it was this extremely taxing experience that left her utterly humiliated. Like, I don't know. It, Something but once again, it, about how like constant legal litigation can be very like trying and draining on a person and their resources. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's true. And I will say like, it, it's, I don't know. It, it feels a little bit difficult because and you know for despite, Ruth it was probably like also like a pride thing you know like it yeah she had propped herself up as this like great CEO to then have like all this like 
stuff coming at her and to, you know, lose in court, like... Yeah. That that might change the reputation a little bit. Mm-hmm. And, I don't know, despite Ruth's bad mental health history and different recorded instances of suicidal ideation displayed by her, I don't know, I just sometimes find it a little difficult to contend with these lofty accounts of Ruth trying to get out of her community service on a constant basis over the next couple of years. Like, it goes into so many details about how she would constantly be trying to appeal to the corpse to lessen that 2,500 hours and, like, making it seem like it's such a difficult thing. Which, you know, yeah, she was a cancer survivor in the, like... And by now she was like getting into her fifties and sixties, so like I can't. Because yeah, of... say like the the mastectomy gave her like nerve damage and stuff like that. So... Yeah, nerve and muscle damage. So she did also experience maybe like her chronic pain. That, like that maybe physical labor might be a bit much for her at this stage, but that's true. Except yeah. you want to know what her community service was. It did not her... involve physical labor. What was it? Instead, she would have to work as a manager for a nonprofit called Boys Republic, which today boasts helping over 50,000 troubled young men seek the work and stability that they need uh, in terms of, like, doing work programs and, like, getting them out of, like, out of jail and, like, kind of getting them back on their feet. They, like, the nonprofit was really wanting her to, like, help join so that, because she had all this business experience and she they figured, oh, she would be a really big help in managing that. Yeah, in that case, so, Ruth, like, come on. Come on. You just, you just, you're not, they're not just, even making you go to there to be like a, like a low-level clerk or anything. Like, you. Yeah, you're just, well, no, for her initial that wasn't even, like, her initial community service actually was involved with her uh, doing volunteer work at her synagogue uh, in the office, but she found the experience so humiliating she quit. And this was, like, the third or fourth, like, thing that they threw at her as a thing she could try and use for community service. Mm-hmm. You think, like, she ever tried to argue about how her... Uh breast implant company was technically community service she kind of did try to put a lot of focus on that so yeah a little bit (laughs) she did yeah it's i don't know kind of just feels a little low-key scubby if i'm gonna be honest yeah boys republic by all accounts it seems like a decent enough organization like in my research, they do seem to be providing a genuine service. But more importantly for Ruth, it was just what she needed to get her probation terminated in 1982, 18 months before her sentence was supposed to end. Yay. Yep. Aren't you happy for her? Yeah. She had to spend... She got out of spending 18 more months doing volunteer work and helping other people. I don't know. Yeah, that's about how it goes. Yeah. However, 
for the next couple of years, this joy would be cut short. Uh, not by anyone else, not by any other news sort of litigation or lawsuits, but more familial news with Ken Handler, the son who once resented Barbie's beau sharing his name. Up to this point, Ken was cutting his teeth as an artist in Greenwich Village throughout the 1970s and 80s, trying to put his artistic mark on the world as a rejection of the material of the materialism he thought was being promoted by Barbie and Ken dolls. At this moment, any jokes that you can make to evoke the musical Rent are going to be extremely apt, Emma. Oh no, is he Mark? He's basically fucking Mark. No! Yeah! Ken was known for pursuing a very bohemian lifestyle in the village and would often hide the fact that he was related to extremely wealthy parents who lived out in Malibu. He's got to he's got to make his he can't he can't be uh, have a job as a journalist. That's selling out. He's got to make his film. That's just a slideshow of people for but it'll change uh, the world. From this day forward, I, I shoot without a script or whatever <laughs> fucking trite ass bullshit he pulled on. Yeah, it's I don't know. Ken Handler, he seemed like a, an interesting dude because to give him at least some credit yeah dude was a fucking trust fund baby but he would stage plays he would write and play concerts um would showcase a notable photography exhibit titled a time of plague new york city under siege which chronicled uh which set to chronicle the horrors of the hiv aids epidemic that was inflicting his that was spreading throughout his community. Um, so there's that. Say so you say there's possibility that he was gay himself, or was that? Yeah, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. Mm-hmm. Um, but Emma, I'll tell you this: all that stuff, all well and good, but I know what you're gonna especially want to know. Yeah. Did he ever make any movies? Well, did he? Let me tell you, I'm delighted to tell you, he directed, apparently, three feature-length films. According to, uh, according to the biography, it's, Robin Gerber says he produced three films. I cannot, for the life of me, figure out what this third film was. His IMDb movie has only two movies listed. I, I don't know where she got this third movie. Maybe it was like a documentary home movie maybe he did actually pull a fucking mark and just made like a random ass slideshow and pass that off as a movie i don't know but the two movies i could find um his earliest recorded movie was a film titled pigeon a place without parents which i could not find a trailer i could not find any plot information about this thing i could find out who starred in it like some no-name actors from all I could find, it seems to be just some kind of, like, familial drama about some conflicts between parents and kids growing up. And it's like, gee, I wonder what that could be about. Um, But I am delighted to tell you, Emma, mm-hmm. that I was able to find his cinematic masterpiece. By far his... Uh, the premiere of his artistic vision 
the masterpiece 1985's Delivery Boys, which Ken had written, directed, and composed the soundtrack for. Okay, is this like is this like the the proto version of Newsies? Um, well, just to give you an idea of how wild this movie is, let me just read you the little basic premise of this. A gang of boys under the Brooklyn Bridge are united by their common interest in breakdancing. Some oh. work as pizza delivery boys, hence they call themselves the Delivery Boys. They form a dance team and enter a local breakdance competition sponsored by a woman's panty manufacturer. But a rival gang sponsor intimidates their employer into thinking she must keep the boys working so they won't be harmed. This gives She gives the boys some specialized deliveries to make them late for the contest. And the antics and calamities are abound as the boys wrestle with her work assignments and getting to the contest on time. So I'm wondering what, what the tone of this thing is. This. Oh, you don't need to wonder, Emma, because I got a trailer for yes. you. Yes. Yes. What year did this come out? 1985. Oh, God. I can imagine. I can imagine what it's like. Let me just play that. And then afterwards, Emma, Tris. Try to describe what you see. Okay. It's a party. It's a contest. It's an event. It's a riot. It's delivery boys. An American tradition gone absolutely wild. How are you going to keep me against my will? I won't. In fact, the door won't even be locked. Delivery boys. Rated R. So, uh, yeah, Emma, um, how would you describe what you watched? I, th- I was very confused. Um, there was, uh, there was some boys dancing. There was some, some funny sound effects. There was a, a voiceover where the guy was like, it's exhilarating. It's delivery boys. Um, yep, the yep. scene where, like, a boy, the man has a bunch of, like, like little electrodes attached to him for some reason in a scene, and then there's yep. a scene where a dude is exiting a girl's bedroom, and he's like, "You don't you be keeping me here," and she's like, "I promise I won't." And then he opens the door, and a dog barks at him, and then he's scared. <laughs> Well, no, he gives, like, a little, like, smirking smile. He's like, ah, ha, ha, we have fun here. Yeah, he's like... Haha, <laughs> <laughs> you're holding me against my will. Yeah, it's it's like a, it's like the, the gender-reversed uh, baby it's cold outside. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I... Baby, don't forget dog outside. Don't forget uh, a scene where... It seems like one of the boys is dressed and dragged, and the wig falls off. And it makes while a, he's it makes, the and it makes a, it makes a woo sound, yeah, yeah. And like also, I mentioned, someone screams at what looks like like a, a like a statue with its like legs spread on the side. I was confused about what I was seeing. I I don't know what the hell is going on there. Technically, you can, uh, watch all of Delivery Boys on YouTube. Like someone has uploaded a hour and 33 minute um, 
like VHS rip of Delivery Boys, which Emma, let me just send you the thumbnail of this because this this is absolutely bug nuts insane. It appears to be, yeah, Emma. What do you? Th it's like what do you think is going on here? It's like a picture of three dudes lying on the floor, but their heads are covered with these like kind of like tiki mask looking things. Yeah, and they then look like those on their crotches. Head there's what's meant to be like a penis, like a yeah a round object. Yeah, yeah, I, I. I don't know. Hey, Odd. I, the, I the, do the, have... the description of the movie says a strangely compelling breakdancing comedy from the 1980s, <laughs> landing somewhere on the scale between Beat Street and Porky's. Oh, God. That. Okay. I do have one more clip that I can show you. It's only like 22 seconds long. All right. Let me see. This seems to be from the climax of the movie. Something to say, so listen. Alright, you fellas know about spiders, bad doings. Let's just go out there and take them. Ladies and gentlemen, the moment has just arrived. I'm not going to. <laughs> um. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> I have we see the, the breakdancing competition. Yeah. And we see dude. some guys from backstage talking and it's like Am it, I wrong? Right? Like one of them a... have like like a gun and they're like talking like they're gonna like take him out or something like that? Like... Something like that. I don't know what it, it they it yeah, it felt like this was supposed to be like the motivating speech at the end, because those are the delivery boys. <sighs> so I don't know. Is, yes. Are, are they going after the boys? The delivery I, boys? I don't know. We might just have to watch and find out ourselves. Mm -hmm. Oh, man, Emma. Oh, man, Emma. Should we do an episode on delivery boys? I feel like I feel like our justification for its relation to this podcast would be maybe a little bit thin. Or maybe not. Maybe. It... Maybe not. I, I. Hmm. I don't know. Maybe if I can so find out weird, more about its production. This weird movie that was uh, written and directed by the boy that Ken was named after. I, oh my god. <laughs> Delivery Boys. Delivery Boys, indeed. Okay, so yeah. Um, as amusing as all this might be, uh, Ken's countercultural counter antics were not the source of trouble at this time. Instead, he was sick, but not with cancer, but with the same disease that had devastated his friends and collaborators in Greenwich Village, AIDS. Despite being married to a woman named Susie and having some children, there were always rumors that had surrounded Ken's sexuality. As if, uh, I don't know, I, I have to imagine some of that was just because of, haha, a doll was named after you. Uh, that seems kind of gay. Also considering, like, the area of, like, New York he was living in, the circles he was running in. Yeah. But there were always rumors that had surrounded Ken's sexuality, and it was almost but confirmed that Ken had contracted the disease from one of the many male lovers that Ken was rumored to have during his lifetime. But despite 
trying multiple experimental cures, the disease that had caused Ken to experience, uh, the disease had caused Ken to experience early onset dementia, and Ruth, Elliot, and Susie would spend the next few years helping to comfort Ken in his final days before passing away eventually in 1994, where it was reported that he had passed away from either uh, encephalitis or a brain tumor rather than the highly stigmatized virus that had killed so many others by that time. Um. Perhaps the public revulsion of AIDS caused the handlers to want to cover up the prognosis. Perhaps their conservative Jewish heritage uh, couldn't contend with this potential breaking tradition. Or perhaps they didn't want to associate the real Ken with the infamous earring magic Ken dolls that were becoming a staple to so many gay raves. Yeah, in yeah, wasn't like there LA like a... And New York during this time period? Yeah, wasn't there a thing where someone like made like a kind of like Ken doll that was like explicitly like a gay man and ha was like anatomically correct and everything? Oh, uh, he wasn't anatomically correct, but the earring magic Ken dolls were... Uh, what had happened was there were focus group tests that um, the story goes is that there were focus there were focus group tests among girls asking if uh, they could reinstate Ken as Barbie's boyfriend and also asking like oh what kind of changes should we make and survey results indicated that girls wanted Ken to be kept but they wanted him to look cooler so they redesigned Ken as a result. And um, in order to do some of this research, uh, like, engineers at Mattel decided to go to the hip hangout spots where teens were going. And they saw that the most fashion-forward uh, guys at these clubs were these guys who would wear, you know, uh, have blonde highlights, uh, a la like, lavender mesh shirts, a uh, purple pleather vest... A necklace with a circular charm for some reason. Uh, a single earring. Yeah, I'm looking up this earring magic can and... Like... Come on, the mesh shirt. Come, yeah, like, s someone had to know. Someone, like, 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 the ring itself, like, that was specifically a, like, staple amongst, like, uh a lot of those gay club scenes, like, a part of, like, kitsch-minded gay men would... Yeah. It, like... People described it as basically a chrome cock ring that he had on his neck. <laughs> but ironically, because so many gay men started buying the dolls in record numbers, uh, Earring Magic Ken is the best-selling Ken model in Mattel's entire history. We did it, gays. We did it. <laughs> you know, as an L, I'm, I'm happy for you guys. <laughs> so, yeah, I, the fact that this is, like, being released the same year that the real Ken is dying, I don't know. That's, that's, that's kind of a bummer. Yeah. But, yeah. Either way, Ken's death would cause the handlers to reevaluate their relationship with their works. Quote, we tried very hard to give them enough time and enough attention, Ruth would later say, but we were very preoccupied with the business, and we can were consumed by the business. So, yeah. 
in the following years, um, with nearly me working fine and the handlers sometimes being called to Mattel for like consultations, uh, Ruth would spend her days in the following years with her grandchildren and contending with the new millennium. Um, but eventually, Ruth began to develop colon cancer and went in for surgery in April of 2002, only for complications to emerge during the operation. Because of this, Ruth would pass away on April 27th at the age of 85. So many would mourn the loss of the woman that was behind the world's most famous doll. And in a story like this, I think there's a lot of temptation to either venerate uh, a person to the point of deification or vilify them to this degree of irredeemability. Yeah, it's like, you know, she was a complicated person. Like, you know, she worked very hard to get to the position she had, you know, and obviously you can see how losing all that she had built at Mattel coupled with, you know, having the cancer and the mastectomy, you know, it really seemed like it deeply affected her in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. you know, and it's I don't Not know. To I mention, think like anyway, the I troubles think... with her children. Yeah, and like maybe feeling in some ways that there were failure failures in parentage. Mm. And I don't know. She's just kind of like a complicated person. Like I don't know. When discussing a story like Ruth Handler's, one saying that comes to mind is this. It's a mistake to make gods out of men, but it's also a mistake to make them devils. Mm -hmm. It could have been real easy to paint Ruth as this entrepreneurial genius or this irredeemable monster, but history and people are rarely that easy to sum up. On one hand, you can point to the ways that she benefited from and reinforced many of the same systems of oppression, which still ravaged the world today as she brought Barbie to cultural ubiquity. But... Once she was ousted from Mattel and underwent her cancer treatment, these accounts left the impression of a woman who did seem like she wanted in some way to reconcile the harm she might have brought about in her lifetime. I don't know. I don't know. Like you said, it's complicated. Yeah. When she... And, was Elliot yeah. still alive when she died? Yeah, Elliot would... Uh, Elliot was still alive for... A little bit and uh ruth died in 2002 and elliot would live to the age of 95 when he passed away in july 21st of 2011 uh of heart failure hmm. so yeah it it was uh yeah i don't know it, it is interesting to contend with i know um that sucks about ken now I now I'm now I'm interested in his weird his weird delivery boy movie. Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. It it is a wild time. I don't know. I I don't think I'm in a position to condemn another person in the eyes of history, but 
I, I do think that Ruth Handler's story and Barbie's story by extension sorry, does highlight plenty of other systems and atrocities that are worth condemnation. There's just something fun about kind of going down the rabbit hole where you had this kind of one version of Ruth Handler, like she was this female CEO that came in and brought Barbie to the world. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of like kind of peel back the layers and you see the the reality of a person, you know? Yeah. And it's always yeah. a lot more more interesting than the easy feel good story. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But I find it also way more fulfilling to be able to look at that kind of stuff from that perspective. Yeah. Like I said, history's rad. Oh yeah. So and you know, I do I do recommend uh like Robin Gerber's biography and I have put a bunch of the sources that I have in here in the description. So I highly encourage, uh, listener, if you've been enjoying this, uh, I encourage you to check out the sources yourself with some of this. But yeah. Many discoveries were made. Uh, many naked dolls were looked at. Yep. Um, I'm still not over the Miss Hagon Barbie. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> That, oof, that, I don't know. The helicopter, why the helicopter? Yeah, the helicopter, that, like, okay, that is one thing I can unequivocally condemn, <laughs> like, Ruth Sandler for. Like, what the hell were y'all thinking? I, I mean, I know, I think. I mean, it came out in 96, after, but I don't think she had the, Yeah, she wasn't directly involved, but it's still, still, <laughs> like. By some extension, she did allow this to partially happen. So, I don't know. I think we can... It, it, it's bad. It's all bad. Uh, but, yeah, on that note, uh, thank you all for joining us on this little excursion through the Pink Isle into this little Pink Isle history session. A um, little bit different from our usual fare, but... I, I hope y'all enjoyed this. This was a really fun thing to write and research and all that stuff. I've really enjoyed a lot of this. And I hope you guys enjoyed it too. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Um, so, if you enjoyed this stuff, uh, please let us know about that. Uh, there are a couple ways you could do that. You could... Uh, Give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Maybe leave a little review telling us what you think of, like, these recent slew of episodes. Uh, We'd love to hear your thoughts on that. And also, um, I don't know, uh, you could also shoot us an email at pinkalpod at gmail.com. If if you want us to do an episode on the Delivery Boys. Oh, yes, please, please let us know if you can... If you could sign off on us doing Delivery Boys, uh, absolute heartbeat. Uh, seems like a wild time. Uh, so let us know if that's something you'd be into. Uh, but yeah. And oh, also, I guess we do still have a hold on the the, the Cursed Bird app at Pink Owl Pod. Um, but yeah. And Emma, you're also... Still within the talents of the cursed bird. Uh, although it aches my soul more and more every day. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm oh, man. It's, it's still... If you want to follow, you can. If you want to follow, you can. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, that's gonna be a ship. <laughs> I still need to look for a potential ship to jump from to with that. Probably Tumblr. I don't know. I I could definitely make a a pink owl Tumblr blog. Let us know if that's something y'all would be down with, cause y there is so much Emma. There is so much rad Barbie fan art on Tumblr that I would just reblog the shit out of. Yeah. Even just on my own personal blog, it's great. I might just do that. I don't know. But yeah. Uh, as for me, um, if you want to see other kind of stuff that I'm up to, uh, you could also follow me on the Cursed Bird app at Kathman Henry, as well as uh, henrykathman.tumblr.com, which is where all my stuff is at, including my YouTube videos at my YouTube channel, Henry Kathman. And hopefully by the time that this episode's out, my video about Gontarov is going to be public and you can watch that and in the meantime uh everything that i do is supported thanks to the generous donations on patreon uh for just one dollar a month help me pay is my bills and it's very appreciated so yeah thank you all for the support with all this um yeah Oh, wait a minute. I remember how I was going to end this thing off, Emma. So, usually what I do is I play out these episodes by having us listen, uh, by playing uh, Dolls My Nine Muses, because that's kind of like the theme music that we've used. But I do have a track from Delivery Boys. Uh, not This one wasn't written by... Uh, this particular song wasn't written by... Uh, Ken Handler, but was written by uh, someone named Sandy Mann, and I think that's the note I want to end on with this. Sounds like a plan. So, until next time, thank you all once again for listening. Fare thee well! Come on!